good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'd like to say uh, thank you to the organizers of this event. I do appreciate being invited and given this great opportunity to speak at this time. I also want to say thank you to my fellow panelists. Um, definitely a high bar to follow and definitely amongst a very elite company on this panel. So I'll try and do my best for the next few minutes when I present some thoughts, because it's definitely not a paper. They say a 10 minutes. I said, that's not a paper, man. I'm a teacher, man. I'm long-winded, man. What's happening? I'm going to try and make it work, though. I'm going to try and make it work. In the future, we will call reconsidering 1959 and the long struggle for desegregation in Bermuda. 1959 was truly an eventful year in the British colony of Bermuda, as the island's apparent tranquility was punctuated by a boycott of movie theaters in June that brought a crashing end to segregation. However, this significant historical moment in June was sandwiched between a series of events that should cause us to question the completeness of this apparent victory. How also, it should help us reconsider the meanings of June 1959 and cause us to align our perspectives more closely with those activists who fought this great racial battle. With these thoughts in mind, I would just like us to reflect on some events which occurred before and after the theater boycott of 1959, before concluding with a thought from the progressive group. And if you're wondering, it's up there. It was May 15th, exactly one month before the start of the theater boycott, when the famous African-American poet Langston Hughes arrived in Bermuda. Langston Hughes had been invited by the Women's Auxiliary of the Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, and he performed poetry readings at Barclay Institute, made speeches for the Bermuda Union of Teachers, and visited a number of schools around the island. While residing at the Archland Villa, you know, they're in Pembroke, uh, Hughes penned a letter to a friend of his in New York City, describing his thoughts on the island. He commented the following. He said, Bermudians had, and I quote, treated me so nice, I ought to love their island, but not I, nay, not at all. In the paragraph which followed, Hughes revealed some of the reasons for his dislike for Bermuda. He stated that the island was, and I quote, almost as segregated as North Carolina and full of British crackers. I'm gonna need a little pause, don't take this from my time, but I'm gonna need some help from some literature scholars because I'm not sure which kind of crackers he's talking about whether it's the ones you put cheese on or the two-legged ones. I was at a difficulty. I was at a diff I must admit this. I have a PhD, but I struggled with this cracker. So somebody help me out after the conclusion. They're all, please, thank you. you. You can start my time again. The fact that a British visit, uh, the, the fact that a black visitor to Bermuda would compare the island's racial climate to the southern United States the place that engineered Jim Crow segregation, breathe that in for a second, is telling in that it reveals the palpable nature of segregation in the 1950s and undermines the arguments of white Bermudian segregationists who claim that the island's color line was benign when compared to the United States. More significantly, the testimony of Langston Hughes bears witness to the problem of racism that the theater boycotters would soon fight against. Still, more than this, I draw attention to Langston Hughes and Archland Villa to highlight the significance of black tourists and the black-owned tourism sector in the long struggle for desegregation and civil rights in Bermuda. 
You see, in the years leading up to the theater boycott, black tourists were vocal critics of Bermudian segregation. And as consumers of the island's number one product of tourism, they made their opinions known in the African-American press, the Bermuda Recorder, and the periodicals of other Caribbean islands. The owners and operators of black hotels, guest houses, and other hospitality services, they joined with black tourists in challenging the color line. They spoke out at public events like the Leopards Club's dinner. Some of you might remember those. They, they lodged formal complaints before the tourism officials, and they advocated for civil rights causes in the House of Assembly, as well as before legal and political authorities. By networking with black people throughout the Atlantic world to solve the problem of Bermuda segregation using both formal and informal political processes, Bermuda's struggle to eradicate segregation must truly be understood as a diasporic civil rights struggle. In other words, a case study in black internationalism. And I'm so thankful to follow Dr. Swarm because he's threaded that outline already in some of the activities of Dr. Roosevelt Braun, Paulu Kamakafigo. You see, for example, as it relates to desegregation in Bermuda, we can see these examples of, of diasporic civil rights. For example, the island's very first successful theater protest was organized by Ms. Carol Hill and Mrs. Georgine Hill following the Bermudiana Theaters Club's refusal to sell them tickets on account of their race. You see, Georgine's husband was, was Mr. Hilton G. Hill, a travel agent and owner of Bermuda Vacations Travel Service. He suggested that they should picket the theater, and after months of activism, the theater dropped its color bar in spring 1951. Another example may include, in 1954, the Bermuda Jockey Club, the horse racing track there, desegregated its grandstands after a sustained effort of political pressure by Russell Pierman, E.T. Richards, and Hilton Hill. The campaign to desegregate the Jockey Club was sparked by an incident during the summer of 1951 when four African-American tourists were denied entry to the grandstands. And those politicians who I mentioned, Russell Pyramid, we know that he was involved with the guest house industry through what? Being owner of what? The Hermley Guest House, yeah? Run by his wife, Doris. E.T. Richards, I know he gets more shine for being government leader, but he was a board member and also the president of the Imperial Hotel. Also, Hilton G. Hill, as we've already mentioned, very famous travel agent who eventually expanded his business and moved to the United States and ended up handling travel for the NAACP and even the Nation of Islam. Malcolm and their brothers was traveling by. Hilton G. Hill. Bermudians are everywhere. <laughs> However, these observations are more than mere historical observations. Rather, they form the context of possibility that informed the actual theater boycott. You see, in other words, the progressive group would not have even bothered to organize without some knowledge and belief that changing the racial status quo was even possible. So while the years preceding the boycott showed the saliency of diasporic civil rights alongside incremental victories, and mind you, that's incremental, not total, incremental victories over segregation in very specific areas, the period that followed 1959 demonstrated the incompleteness of the boycott successes. With respect to its successes, the progressive group organized a boycott of all segregated movie theaters on the island that began on June 15, 1959, and by June 30th, they had compelled all six movie houses to desegregate. These movie houses were owned by Bermuda General Theaters, and they ended up desegregating completely, even though they denied that it was the pressure of the boycott. 
In addition, the street protests and motorcades associated with the boycott frightened the white elite management of seven hotels into relaxing their racial rules. And I say relaxing, so I'm gonna come back to that. The hotels included the Belmont, the Bermudiana, Elbow Beach, Inverurie, the Princess, St. George's Hotel, as well as Castle Harbor. These hotels began allowing blacks to enter for dinner, drinks, dance, and entertainment. However, their accommodations still remained segregated. This came back to demonstrate a very critical element of the incompleteness of this victory. Because you see, on September 8, 1960, a Pan-American jet left Bermuda en route to New York City. Unfortunately, the plane experienced engine trouble and was forced to return back to the island. Because it was late at night, Pan Am gave all 87 delayed passengers a free night at the Castle Harbor Hotel since it was located near the airport and they would not have to go home and return back early in the morning. I wish airlines still did that nowadays, man. <laughs> that don't count against my time. I think everybody supports that, man. Airline don't give you nothing, man. It's a snow. They'll just kick you off the plane, man, and they don't even care, like. Where was I? Anyway, yeah, so they, so they get delayed. They're in Bermuda. Pan Am gives all 87 passengers a voucher to go and stay at Castle Harbor Hotel. However, when the passengers were dropped off at the Castle Harbor, there were 15 black members of the group, and they were refused accommodations because of their race, even though the booking had been made by Pan Am and was already paid for. This situation sent a powerful message because black tourists were denied alongside black Bermudians because the group of black passengers included a handful of university students returning to school, as well as an African-American Air Force sergeant, as well as his wife. The black passengers protested loudly in the lobby, but they were forced to wait while the white passengers were taken to their rooms. However, management would not yield. However, management said, you know something? It's okay though, you can use a portion of your room credit to go get some drinks and something to eat in the dining room because it's been recently desegregated. I don't need that right now. I need a place to stay. However, it was more folks in that group who were thinking the same way. Two university students, Hewitt Stubble, he was studying at Howard University, and, and Vincent Bridgewater, he was a pre-med student at Lincoln University, summarized the entire group's feelings, and he told the manager, he said, look, if we're not good enough to sleep her, you can't profit by us eating her. Soon afterwards, the black passengers vacated the hotel lobby in disgust, and several bellhops and other black staff members staged an impromptu walkout in solidarity. Ashe, Ashe. What do we see? We see the battle against segregation which followed the theater boycott containing instances of diasporic civil rights action. Therefore, the periods before as well as the periods after the theater boycott were united by themes of black protests in the face of white resistance to desegregation, as well as white resistance to complete racial and political equality. Given the continuity of the struggle found on both sides of 1959, how can we realign our perspectives to meet those who fought these historical racial battles? I believe the parting words of the progressive group offer us some direction. On July 1st, they published a letter to the editor that was published in the Bermuda Recorder a victory letter, so to speak, after the conclusion and the successful desegregation of those six theaters. In part, it reads, I just kept a little quote from it. It says, we appreciate that the hotels, restaurants, and theaters are desegregated. 
The people of Bermuda are to be thanked, congratulated for the striking display of solidarity shown since June 15th. The day should become for Bermudians what Emancipation Day is to the world. Remember, there are still goals to be achieved. Therefore, in the future, we will call upon Bermudians for a similar display of solidarity if it is deemed necessary. You see, the progressive group's parting statement serves as a succinct intellectual summary of the politics of race in the 1950s, as well as a clarion call for continued anti-racist activism today. They acknowledge the continuing presence of racism by stating that there would be goals to be achieved. They acknowledge the success of their strategies by praising the people's solidarity and ask them to stand ready. Okay, my time's done. And ask them to stand ready for the next opportunity to deploy the same techniques to desegregate. In other words, they were telling us we need to stand ready because the struggle continues. He said, because in the future, in the future, in the future, we will call. Thank you.